we need to get you a microphone, like one of those old timey like racer uh, microphones, like when they're when they're announcing like a horse race, so that it like pans around with you. <laughs> you are so energetic while we're doing this stuff, and it's like sometimes it's really good, and then it's like way over here. I'm the worst. No, I I've noticed that I'm the absolute worst. I have I I don't it's like I cannot believe I'm this bad at this. Like I'm I, in a way I'm happy. I'm this bad at resumed this. recording. Resumed. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Okay. So um, yeah. Hey, uh, welcome back to Research Nuggets. Uh, I'm Eamon. I'm Jeremy. And today on the show, we've got uh, assistant professor at University of Georgia, uh, Dr. Jill Stefaniak, who's going to be talking to us about uh, a systematic review she did about systemic issues in instructional design, specifically their models and such great conversation overall uh you're i think uh, i think we learned a lot of stuff uh, uh out of it and i think uh, anyone that's interested in instructional design at either big level small level medium level uh, will take uh, have some pretty solid takeaways from the episode jeremy and away we go <laughs> yes <laughs> Uh, Dr. Stefaniak, thank you for joining us today. Um, basically, welcome to Research Nuggets. I'm Eamon, and this is my esteemed colleague, Jeremy. <laughs> um, and basically, we, we're, today we just want to kind of go through some uh, some recently published research that you've put forth that talks about instructional design and, uh, from a systemic a systematic approach. Uh, but first off, uh, maybe maybe give us a little bit about yourself, just a little bit of your background and and what you're doing and what you're interested in. Sure. So my name is Jill Stefaniak. I'm an associate professor in the learning design and technology program at the University of Georgia. And uh, prior to getting into academia, I spent several years working in healthcare administration, particularly in medical simulation. So I did a lot of stuff involving performance improvement initiatives. Um, I, I joke and say my job was usually brought in for damage control after they you know they had identified a need for for training that involved you know multiple units or departments within within the healthcare system. Um, so I've I've been able to see how big the system can get when we're designing both instructional and non-instructional interventions. Um, so at um, the University of Georgia, I teach courses in um, instructional design, advanced instructional design, needs assessment, and um, human performance technology. Uh, my research interests are, the, the big overarching umbrella is I'm interested in the professional development of instructional designers because I've being out in the field and knowing what the realities are as an instructional designer, oftentimes we're, we're juggling multiple plates in the air. Um, and then also as an instructor of instructional design, I get to see when I'm working with um, students in both like introductory and more advanced instructional design courses, what are some of those challenges that they come across when we're when they're trying to, um, you know, design within these real world and authentic contexts. And so my, my goal through my research is to understand where those gaps exist from how we're teaching it and to what's expected in real world practice. And so from that, I, I do a lot of work studying um, both novice and expert designers and their decision making processes, understanding how are they maneuvering and, and navigating through the systems that they're designing within and what contextual factors um, either support or, or hinder their abilities as instructional designers where, where they're currently working. Yeah, oh, that's great. Thank you for sharing. 
Um, to, we, we reached out because we're particularly, uh, I've, I think I've cited this article in my uh, papers, like, you know, 12,000 times at this point, but, um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm specific- <laughs> yeah, a little bit, um, you know, so uh, the article that we're kind of specifically focused on, and we don't have to just stay on here, but, uh, is, uh, an article in tech trends from, um, 2020, an examination is systemic reach of instructional design models, a systematic review. So, um, uh, and we'll put the link in the show notes and stuff, but um, where did this idea come from? And, you know, like maybe take us through why you chose this idea and why you chose the approach you did from a, like a methodology standpoint. Sure. So, um, well, to be honest, I was working with one of my doctoral students, Mei Mei Xu, on, on this, and we saw the call come out from the Systems Thinking and Change Division. So we were we were excited and wanting to um, put something forward on, on that. And um, one of the things that I, I, I laugh about it with a few of my friends in the field when we discuss models is anytime I mention in a paper or my friends mention in a paper that instructional design um, has systemic implications. We always seem to get a reviewer that will say, "Oh, you, you must have a typo on this particular page. You you use the word systemic. I think you meant systematic." And we're saying, "No, we're very intentional. There are systemic implications <laughs> to what we do." And this has probably happened on like four or five different papers I've written, and I've talked to friends about it. They've encountered the same thing. And so I really wanted to write something that was exploring the systemic, the systemic nature of, of what we do as instructional designers. Um, in, in teaching instructional design, I'm, I'm not here to bash models. I think models are, are very important. Um, I'm, I'm currently working on writing um, a book chapter with a friend and we're, we're talking, ex- we were, we're, we've been asked to write about instructional design models and we're going to. Um, but I think it all depends on how they're used. And so um, I've always said in my classes, um, when I'm teaching an introductory course, I think it's important for students to go through a model, but I, I never want to see a student paralyzed or constrained by the model where they can't move forward because it doesn't say they can move forward yet on that model. Um, and so there's a lot of discussion out there. We've got some people out there prophesizing we need to abandon models altogether. And then we have some that are, I think, too overly reliant on models, which um, both sides, I don't, I don't agree with either side. Um, and so really wanting to look at how are models being discussed in instructional design papers and, and scholarship and are they addressing those those systemic implications and and to what extent? Um, and it's one of those things where, like like any study, when when you're looking at something, you can do a, a search for a literature review, and certain things will come up. But we intentionally picked doing a systematic review because we really wanted to explore multiple databases. We wanted to see what was going to come come forward, um, and then go from there. Um, we didn't feel confident that we would be able to find everything to really tell this story if we hadn't gone that systematic review route. So I always like asking about um, the little bit of bias that we all have to bring into this as as good researchers anyway. We can't ignore it. So what does a good model do for an instructional designer? 
I think it's, well, okay, my personal bias, I think it serves as, as a blueprint. So it serves as a guide. Um, if you're in your very first instructional design course and you weren't even entirely sure what instructional design was when you registered for that class, um, I think models are a fantastic way to provide you with the overview of the various systematic steps we typically see in instructional design. Um, I think that they're good for that. I think that they serve as great training wheels for introductory courses. Um, now, what I'd like to see when I'm working with other, you know, when I'm working on, you know, design projects or I'm teaching advanced instructional design is that's where I still see it as a guide, but it's something I feel like someone who's more experienced can kind of keep in the back of their minds. Okay, are we accounting for certain things? Um, I don't see, and again, this is my opinion. Um, I think a lot of the models convey a very linear approach to instructional design. And I know you can talk to some of the folks that have created models and have written about them, and they would talk about the iterative nature of instructional design, and they'll talk about, you know, thinking about that whole system. So I'm not saying that they're not doing that and they're not seeing it, but I don't necessarily see that that's being communicated and conveyed. So if I was someone brand new to instructional design reading about certain models, and I won't call out certain models where I'm, I'm going <laughs> to yeah, Don't worry, I'm going to do that plenty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to in the field, but, but I don't, I think it could be conveyed um, better. Um, but I, I think that when you, when you kind of look at them at face value, it, they, they kind of suggest that what we do is linear and, and, and we certainly follow a systematic process to instructional design. I, I don't think that we don't. Um, but I think there's times where we have to go back and revisit things. Um, having, having spent, um, a lot of time doing, you know, performance improvement projects, I'm, I'm a big proponent of needs assessment. I've done a lot of needs assessments in, in my career and, um, needs assessments very much grounded in general systems theory. It's looking at that that whole system as a whole. What are all those components or subcomponents? You know, so we could really start breaking down systems and subsystems. What are all those inputs and outputs that are influencing that situation? How much chaos do we have within the system? What's our ability to um, have the system engage in self regulation? What are the the rules and policies kind of governing our systems? Um, and so I think that I don't see where that is prevalent in an instructional design model. And, and I think that your experienced instructional designers will just be able to do that intuitively and they'll be able to maneuver through those various phases outlined in the model. But I don't think overall as a field there, I know there are some folks that are teaching it that way. And there are some programs that are emphasizing that systems view, but it's, not being done across all of the programs in instructional design, which I, I think is a disservice. So one thing, uh, if I could just, you know, dig into that just a little bit, you know, from, from your article, uh, from the article, it, you know, you, you lay out this very kind of uh, exactly to that, you know, blueprint for a good, good blueprint for an instructional designer, but they, f these models seem to, your words here, uh, fail to explicitly address the systemic nature of instructional design. You can go on to mention things like economy of scale, organizational politics, strategic planning, things like that. But what I, what I, soon after that, you make a comment that I think is really interesting, right? Which is, uh, you know, while a variety of models are commonly referenced in the field, few published studies have been conducted that demonstrate or validate 
the use of a model in a real world situation. And to me, that is insane, right? Like that is just crazy pants. Like, so we're, we're, we're teaching these models at a high, uh, you know, a place of higher education. And we're, we're saying, Hey, this is the, but we, it would appear at least. And, and I think it corroborated in your study that most of this is just completely untested. You know, it, it's almost like, um, like a colloquialism that we've picked up and we've accepted as a form of reality. Um, but yeah, maybe like, it, did you think the same thing when you read that? Like, I mean, what is, what are your thoughts on that? I think it goes for a lot of models, especially in performance improvement literature and in, um, you know, needs assessment models, evaluation models, instructional design models. Very few are are validated um, where someone has actually tested them out the way that you might particularly, you know, when we think about engineering models and we and I'm not talking about Gilbert's behavioral engineering model, like just engineering models, mathematical models. Those are models that have been validated over time. Um, and you don't typically see that. I, I remember going through grad school, I had a friend who whose dissertation was validating um, an evaluation model that was used heavily in our field. And so looking at that through a particular case, she picked a particular case in context and, and went through that that model to validate it. Um, but then I'll, I'll be on the flip side. At, at the same time, if models are just meant to be sort of like that blueprint and serve as a job aid and you know, if we go back to knowing, you know, instructional design, um, Jim Quinn would always say anytime you asked him a, an instructional design question, it all depends um, because it all depends. Right. Everything's different and every instructional design project is unique and brings its own set of constraints and, you know, and unique nuances. I don't know if we need to, to validate these models either, um, but it is interesting when you see such a heavy reliance on them from some folks. So it depends on how you're using them, right? If you're using them as a job right. agent to guide your work, what's the difference if you had a cocktail napkin and we're making notes as you're working on a project with someone going, okay, these are the steps we're going to go through now that we know um, that's serving as a job aid as a blueprint for you. Um, it's low fidelity, right? But it, it's serving that purpose. Um, so I don't necessarily know if, if the models need to be validated in their entirety, but what I do see is I don't see where some of those systemic um, factors are are coming into play. Um, and I don't know if you need to have a model, though, that has 50 or 60 moving parts to it, right? That would just be very overwhelming, too. But, um, but I think it's preparing instructional designers and preparing instructional design students and those that are new to the field. You have to be aware of these things, and you're going to have to revisit various phases of that instructional design process um, to account for this, because um, I'm sure you all know you can work on a project and six months from now, a, a new piece of information is going to come out or they've changed. There's a major change that's been announced within the organization. Now you've kind of got to go back a few steps because the path that you were headed isn't a viable path anymore. Um, and I think it's trying to figure out what's the best way to to coach students to be and coach instructional designers to be to be prepared for that. There are a couple of really interesting words that you used as I was listening to you there that we've got to coach our students. Absolutely. And I think that analogy holds up because with coaching, you aren't playing the game. You're putting a player into the game and then you're hoping that you've prepared them. But then what's also interesting is, and you're not the only one where we all do the same thing. We call these instructional design models blueprints, but 
if I hand an architect or if an architect hands me a blueprint and then I hand it over to uh, my contractor, if it's on the blueprint, it's getting built. So I think I can I can see why so many designers and then instructors of instructional design want to teach this in such a linear fashion because, well, no, the the rafters were supposed to be 18 inches on center as we were building this house. We did it. You said do this in this model. I did it. And now I'm ready to go to the next thing. I can't circle back because that's not drawn in on my blueprint. So I, I wonder if that linear thinking is partly the fault of how we frame the the just the the general adjective of what we do how how we're describing our action then i i would agree with that you know i i had a conversation with uh, another instructional design faculty member last week they were talking about music and they said um the best way to play around with music is to learn the rules first before you start breaking them. And I think that that's true in instructional design. Um, I I, I taught for, I taught as an adjunct years ago for an institution where they did not want to have instructional design models at all mentioned in their introductory class. And it was a horrible experience for the students. For myself, I thought it was a horrible experience as an instructor. Because <laughs> I had students emailing me going, I think I'm in the wrong class. You're not teaching the process. And and I was I wasn't allowed to to change that as the adjunct. I was told these are the materials, you need to teach it this way. It's already kind of been developed. But I of think course. but again, and I wouldn't want to see a, a, someone who's brand new to instructional design learning that process for the first time to be skipping around and, oh, we don't need learner analysis. We know they're, they're you know, I'm training people. Well, no, we need to know more about them. And what does that mean? So the linearity piece, I think it serves a, a purpose um, when you're teaching it for the, the first time and you kind of, you want to teach them with those training wheels on, right? You don't want to throw in all these different constraints, but once, once they've got a feel for what that process should look like and how it can flow when it's uninterrupted, which we know doesn't never happens in reality, um, then get them prepared for how are you going to adapt and modify your approach to design based on whatever emerges within that system. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And and that's the second time you use that training wheel analogy. Nobody that's doing, you know, motocross at the X Games still has training wheels on. Just like no, you know, Michelin star chef is still working from a recipe. They've got an idea of what they're doing. They had recipes to begin with, and they've probably still got their cookbooks on the shelf. But do they go back to that every day? No. Do they go back to it for inspiration? Sure. It's an interesting point there, Jeremy, because uh, my I wonder about that though. So so let me let me get into one of the just kind of one of these things that you, you point out in the article and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really, so you, you guys wind up finding in the systematic review, 89 studies that kind of fit within the realm of, Hey, we use the model. So you, you start with a couple thousand and you, you get down to 89 and then, but 38 of those 89 created their own model that, that had previously not been in the, um, you know, in, in the purview of of the you know existing research, and then you 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 go on to say that um, you you quote Branch and Ducey, I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> uh, they, it gets into this uh, rationale of using models, 
And their description is, I got to say, it's very project management. It just seems like, you know, the, the overwhelming, it seems like almost all the models that you we wind up describing are these how to do the project of instructional design. And so to Jeremy's point a second ago with the, with the chef and with, um, you know, like, so how to serve a dish might be, uh, you know, like might, might, might require a sous chef and it might require a, a waiter to take the order. The project management of a, of a bakery or of a restaurant or of a pharmacy requires all these linear steps that gets the piece of whatever it is to the person. But the, the product, the thing in our case would be the instruction. And the thing that I'm kind of always, it's always blowing my mind is I don't think any of these models actually help with that. I think they're great in sense of kind of laying out the things you should consider when designing a piece of instruction but even Addy, I mean, the second, you know, the, the D is design, right? So, you know, like it's one of those things, like you're, you, if you use the definition within the definition, you know, it's not a good definition, <laughs> right? You know, so like, okay, what are you designing at that point? Because if the whole process is de- the design of instruction, what does design mean at that point? Um, and, and so, yeah, like, uh, did you notice the same thing? I mean, is this, do you, do you feel like this? We've got this like focus on this like kind of project management almost orientation, but do you think these models are lacking some of the, you know, maybe more tangible help for how to create a piece of instructional content or messaging? Yes, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm going to say yes. You know, I'm I'm laughing at how you're ripping apart Addy and and all. <laughs> Tanya Duse's got a great video on YouTube where she's getting really annoyed with people saying Addy is not a model, and she just keeps repeating it because it's a process. But yeah. you know, and just as you're mentioning, you know, the first D in Addy is design. I get really annoyed with the A in Addy being analysis because I'll talk to a lot of people that will say, well, yeah, I did a learner analysis and they think that they can check needs assessment off and and be done with it. And I don't <laughs> think that we tackle that enough in the field. And, and so the needs assessment person in me is, you know, um, getting really upset. I feel like sometimes I'm the... Um, the pastor's wife from the Simpsons, you know, anytime there's an issue in Springfield, you know, his wife's yelling out the children. What about the children? I feel like I'm always <laughs> going, needs assessment. What about needs assessment? Cause I don't think we're taking that 30,000 foot view that we should sometimes. Um, but again, I, and I do, I think that they've described it in a prescriptive manner, similar to project management. But even when we look at, even when you look at project management techniques, it's very prescriptive when you're looking at that. Even with agile, recognizing that you need to be agile is still very prescriptive. And you never know. It's like how you never know how much time you're going to spend on a particular phase of, of instruction. You, you never know. And I think it's we, we try to come up with these. I don't know if people are necessarily conveying it. Maybe that's it's just the way it's being interpreted sometimes is that you should only be spending so much time within these various steps um, or, or, um, and, or phases of the instructional design process. And we know that it's, it, it's going to be variable from, from project to project. But um, I think that a lot of the instructional design models that are out there 
are focused more and it's okay that they are like, but they're focused more on designing that piece of instruction where I don't feel like we, I feel like we could really push the limits and go beyond how implementation and evaluation are conveyed. Um, I think a lot of these instructional design models just say, well, you implement it, deliver the instruction, evaluate, have an assessment at the end to see, did your learners learn anything? We're not really seeing in, you know, these instructional design mo models where people are going into full-blown, you know, confirmative evalu evaluative techniques where we're doing, you know, logic models and really looking at have we reached our intended goals? Because in order to do that, we would have had to have done a full-blown needs assessment. And that's where I don't see that that's necessarily being done for, for a variety of reasons. Our clients don't want to pay for it. They don't want to spend that much time on it. Um, we don't have the time or resources. Sometimes there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't get done. I don't think it's, it's not always, I don't want to blame the instructional designers that aren't able to do it because there's a lot of reasons sometimes that prevent them from being mm -hmm. able to do it. Um, and, but yeah, it was very interesting. It was interesting to us though, when we were looking at the, the papers, especially the ones where they created their own models, um, because very few created anything novel or new. I mean, mo most of it was, it was Addy it, or, or, you know what I mean? Or it was somebody <laughs> else's model and they might've added like, you know, one thing, but if it was, if they use that as a job aid and, and adding that one, that one word helps them in some way, shape or form, then that's okay, right? Because I mean, we all, what's the difference than having that expert instructional designer just kind of be aware of the model, kind of keeping it in the back of their mind, how they might how they might use use something. Um, yeah, no, so I, I think that's, that's one of the, I, I don't, so I think the models are, I think the models are fine for, like, so I think the models are fine for kind of the, the way that an instructional designer might communicate the steps of instructional design with someone, right? I, I think, but where I think the models are lacking, and, you know, this kind of almost gets into the field of instructional design, whether we're an art or a science or, or what, you know, like we, we have this kind of, um, I think most instructional designers that I've spoken with or people that are in the field, they, they, they feel like they don't necessarily, like, at least it seems like they're always in this fight to explain why their thing is meaningful, right? Like, Hey, this is it, right? Like, this is the, I'm bringing the heat, right? I'm a, this is, this is what I bring to the table. And it becomes this like, almost like labor of love thing. Right. Uh, but that inherently means you have to have this like very qualitative, almost relationship with whoever you're communicating with so they understand passion right but then in the flip side of that the passion then becomes hey can you build this thing and articulate storyline thanks bye you know like <laughs> there's a huge disjoint there right i i, I feel and uh, so there's a part of me that wonders if the if you know your your article making finding these findings is is in fact a a, a, in itself, a systemic reflection, if you will, of how we we're looking at instructional design in this we can solve this big problem thing, right? But we're kind of almost like missing the forest for the trees. Like we we're prescriptive in the sense of this is how you do the project, but are we at all that prescriptive in how to develop a piece of content, right? Like uh, where is like, where is that validation happening, right? And this might get into the whole, like, you know, media is a garbage truck or whatever, you know, thing. Um, but, like, 
I do wonder about that because that's the thing I run into all the time. Hey, we want a piece of instruction. What should we do? Addy's not, and no, no offense. This is no offense to Addy. That's not going to help me there, right? Like, because I have to be able to come with some type of evidence to suggest making video is going to be better than providing a piece of paper. What are your, you know, what what are your thoughts on that? Because I, in ways, I think like in some respects, we might need to be more prescriptive in how we're developing training interventions, irregardless of the kind of project management thing we're using to get the actual work done, you know? Yeah. You know, um, I mean, and, and what you're describing isn't unique, right? You could talk to any instructional designer and, and they're going to say they encounter the the same things. I, I almost think it's how... It'd be really great if someone did a study on it or if someone's looking for a dissertation topic. How, how, how do instructional designers communicate instructional design? So it's no different, like, and this applies to everyone in our field. You start a degree in instructional design. I remember when I first started, um, my mom would carry around a, a post-it in her, in her wallet so that if someone asked her, what's your daughter taking in school, she'd whip out that post-it and she had instructional design and technology and she would provide a very like her one sentence description of it now over the years, <laughs> over the years she's, she's gotten a little cocky now she doesn't need that post-it so now she'll throw out the acronyms and oh you don't know what that is and and she can describe it but you know it's like when we're talking to you know, family members or friends at different functions and they say, oh, so what do you do? There's a way you can explain it to other people. Oftentimes, like if someone asks me, what do I teach right now in learning design and technology? I'll say, I teach other people how to teach or I teach other people how to design instruction. But I, I'm not necessarily going to describe it that way. If I go to a professional conference and I'm talking to other people in the field, I'm going to use different terms. And so I think it's knowing how to communicate certain aspects and when to um, I've seen in doing needs assessments where instructional designers have made things so difficult for everyone that they're working with um, in doing e-learning description because they have thrown out all the different theories and guiding processes and what's going to inform, you know, scaffolding and, and assessment and message design that people don't need to know, you know, your project manager who might be tasked with the project and interfacing with the client, they don't necessarily need to be conveying all of, you know, Mayer's multimedia principles to the client, but there's ways that you could be explaining the rationale behind what you're doing. And I think it's knowing how much of that should you be doing. Um, I, I did a needs assessment where um, one of the instructional design managers had them breaking down in the clients. It was just, they were just, it was just, they were done with it, but breaking down and, and uh, categorizing every learning objective. I'm going, they don't, they don't do that. I would expect an instructional designer to be able to look at something and know what's more of a procedural versus a cognitive objective, but they don't need to be labeling that and, and breaking that down and getting into the minutia of learning theory when talking to a client. And so if you go back to thinking about Addy or any of these other instructional design models that are out there, I think it's great when you have that that addy process to to go to a client and say look we're going to design instruction this is the process that we're going to follow roughly and stuff and then i think then you start seeing because when you look at the literature on novice versus expert designers and and there's some people out in the field that don't like those terms either they'll say oh you know they don't <laughs> they don't like that um, but when you look at some of the work on that um ertmer and steppage wrote a paper in 2005 on this 
comparing the differences that they had seen and um, expert designers, experienced designers have this way of constantly scanning their environment. And they do it so intuitively and picking up on how they're going to build upon things, how they're going to draw from their prior knowledge and prior experience. And so it's that that's it's that ability to scan. Um, and that's really hard to teach. I don't necessarily I don't I don't and I don't think we need a model either to teach somebody how to scan either. Um, <laughs> we need more models. But but again, but those are things to be thinking about is just having those conversations. And I think and I think coaching um, I like the term coaching because in a lot of instructional design programs, you're doing a lot of those real world, authentic projects. And I think helping students to scan by asking them different questions to reflect upon, I think, are ways you can elicit some of that from them. Um, but it's getting into that mindset. What do you already know? Um, so going back to your example, you were mentioning, Eamon, about work, you know, when, when you've been designing a lot of e-learning modules and you've dealt with a lot of different clients and you know we all have those projects that work really well and those ones where there's little hiccups that pop up you're pulling from that experience so there might be ways you can mitigate some of those um hiccups from occurring for future projects but but recognizing how much do you need to tell the client um and i think when we are trying to advocate for certain things um we have to know as instructional designers you know What's the hill that you want to die on, right? So for me, when I've been doing consulting, I refuse to put the word understand in a learning objective. I'm like, I'm not doing <laughs> it. I, I don't care if that's how you handled it with all of your courses. I'm I'm not going to be doing that. And if you send it back to me, I'm going to change that word back. Now, there's other things where I might not necessarily agree with how you want to handle some of the assessments at the end. I'm going to pick and choose if, if it's, if it's okay, then fine. But there's certain, we all have those things going, Nope, can't, can't do it. Can't do it. So I think it's, okay. it's knowing that. Um, I think it's, if, if you see something that's just totally going to go against everything that you know to be good involving multimedia for e-learning, um, and especially seeing, especially in the corporate setting, I find that they just want like the pyrotechnics of e-learning, right? Or, you know, they want the flashing bells and whistles. Who cares whether or not it's actually teaching anybody anything? Their, their competitor um, is, is following a particular format. So they think that that's what they should do. Um, anytime I'm trying to argue certain things or try to advocate for the clients to allow me or my team to spend additional time on a certain phase or a certain aspect of the project, it's explaining to them that return on investment. And that's usually when you can link it back to how much money this is going to save them, quality, effectiveness. Um, that's usually when you can you can do that. Um, but that's the challenge. I think it's, I think it's so hard for, for what we do, especially in that justification piece, right? You go into a restaurant, the chef doesn't have to justify $50 for this, you know, Wagyu beef. Like, no, okay, we, we kind of know what it is. And I, I think it's part of maybe just some of the, the immaturity of the field. You know, it's that this meta-analysis that we're doing of instruction is so recent, even though instruction itself is so old. I mean, look at how doctors perform bedside, right? They're going to come up and tell you something very different from what they're then going to turn around and tell their nurses and the surgeon and everybody else. There's this lingo that has to happen seamlessly as the designer moves back and forth between the patient client and the people that 
the the other technicians, the other experts that we're working with. And I, I, I wonder if some of that is just an issue of the field being relatively new and novel. I don't know if it's that. Or I, I, I don't know if in a lot of industries, training's an expense, right? So when you look at yeah. when, when a company's going to make cuts to their budget, training's usually one of the first things to go. It's not always viewed as an essential. And and I think that's why we see so many people in instructional design and training and development stand up on their soapboxes and want to, you know, explain why they're doing what they're doing and why it's so important because it is important and it should be essential. And I think it's, it, I think if we could ground, I mean, and this is a discussion for another day, I'm sure, but like we could step <laughs> Everything that we do around return on investment, that's another way where your clients or your the manager making those those cuts, their ears might perk up when you can say, you know, by doing training, you'll save this. Um, you know, having worked in healthcare, there's a couple of times where I, I worked with projects where something something bad had happened and they were like, We we don't have training in, in place. We need to have training to ensure we can prevent this from, from occurring again. So, you know, when it's those serious situations, you know, we see that a lot in health and safety. We see it in, in aviation and, and defense. Um, when we see some of those bad things happen that um, where we're dealing with loss of life or we're just dealing with, you know, lawsuits or potential for lawsuits, it's very easy to kind of figure out how much it might cost, you know what I mean, to justify why, why training is important. Training can help avoid some of those, those challenges. But when it's just for, you know, everyday improvement, some organizations don't realize that full impact that that training may be serving the organization. And it's sometimes it's, it's not until they don't have it anymore that they realize how important it was. Um, but I've mm -hmm. seen, um, same thing with, um, with folks that I know do a lot of stuff with evaluation, that's one of those things where you're trying to explain to your client why they should invest the extra time and money in, in evaluation. Um, I've got a colleague, she offers, she feels so strongly about evaluation when she was working on certain projects and the clients wanted to abandon it altogether. She was like, I'm willing to do this for free. I'll throw it in. I'll make it up. Cause she was like, you need to see this because, and she was doing that to help with her, um, the growth of her business by showing them, if you start seeing how much this is contributing to your return on investment, you're going to want to continue working with me. But she felt so strongly about it because right away they'd say, well, how much is this going to cost? And um, when she realized and in the beginning, when she realized that people weren't, weren't going to do it, she was offering it for free because that's how important she thought it was. Yeah. Hmm. That's really incredible. Um, so I know we're running up on time, uh, Dr. Stefaniak. Uh, so it, it, as the, the goal of Research Nuggets, this illustrious podcast you've chosen to uh, utilize some time on, um, is to make research in the field um, more accessible, uh, a bit easier for people to access, not behind behind paywalls, any blah, blah, blah. I, can, I could go on for that for a while. But um, one thing we like to do is, you know, what is one, you know, it, it, what's the takeaway from, from this, from specifically your, your research here? Um, you know, what's something that you... you You'd want someone to hear, and it changes their life just a little bit. You know, they, they, their, their perspective shifts a little. I just think for anybody, regardless of where they're at in their instructional design trajectory, whether they're just starting out or they're, you know, that more experienced student or they're someone who's been out in the field, it's just 
taking that 30,000 foot view of what you're doing. Um, when we design, we get, sometimes we get thrown down that rabbit hole and we're down there for a while and just taking that step back, popping our heads up again and going, okay, has anything changed? What do I need to be mindful of? And, and I, and I think that was the main goal of this paper just to show when we look at instructional design models, if we're looking at them as blueprints or frameworks, whatever you want to call them, um, it, it's very much going through the, the linearity um, of, of the process, um, which serves a time and purpose at, at different points in time. Um, but really just to remind everybody that there's other stuff there. Take, you know, step back from that model. Look at that 30,000 foot view. What's going on in that system? And, and just being mindful of that, you're, you're going to need to have to scan and, and adapt and, and modify your techniques. Um, and then I'm also just going to do a shameless plug because you talked about making research and everything accessible. Uh, right nice. now, I am the, the editor of the Journal of Applied Instructional Design, and it is um, an AECT journal. Um, and that one is really geared for practitioners. It is open access, um, that, and we're not intending for that to change. Um, we're using um, a platform developed by Royce Kimmins from Brigham Young University called EdTech Books. I strongly encourage any instructional designer, any instructional design student to access EdTech books. There's a ton of resources out there, um, not just the Journal of Applied Instructional Design, but all of our issues are up there. But also um, there's a lot of different books and resources that are free and open too. And so um, I just encourage everyone to, to take a look at that as well. There, there is no shame in plugs. I, I think yeah. plug away. That is yeah. yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, hey, uh, a million thanks. Like, thank you so much for uh, participating with us and in, in our merry festivities. Uh, thanks for the conversation. I think, uh, I think anyone that listens to it will walk away uh, a changed person. Uh, and I appreciate your time. Seriously, you're very welcome. Yeah. Because we are we are expert pro level podcasters now. Uh, well, I mean, we, we should start we doing this as some a... of the equipment. <laughs> like, I have a microphone that I Same. almost know how to use. So, no, we should start a Twitch stream while we record these things. We should do it like Penn Sunday School. Yeah, where like they that. do the live stream and then put out the podcast of the same thing. Except neither one of us are well. One of them is legit, like an actual professional clown. I, I completely agree. No, I think we should do that. I'm always trying to figure out a way to make a Twitch stream pro profitable on my side. I mean, <laughs> I am a capitalist when it comes down to it, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, let's do... Uh, so, hey, uh, thanks for participating in the um, conversation there with uh, Dr. Stefaniak. Um, hopefully, uh, you got as much as out of it as we did. Um, what we've done is in the show notes below, you'll see a link to her article uh, that we discussed throughout the episode, as well as uh, kind of some key links to the places to reach out or contact her. She's fantastic. She's a great source of information uh, for the field of instructional design and definitely a kind of an influential person, at least in my personal life. She's the one that helped me get to uh, my PhD program at Old Dominion. So I'm uh, internally in her debt. Um, but yeah, thanks for thanks for coming out. Yeah, thanks everybody. See you on the next episode. Rock and roll. Cue sitar music. Bring research nuggets. <laughs>